You know what happens when you flip a light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to No Power. Welcome to season two. And we're kicking off season two with Robert Piconi, who is CEO of Energy Vault. They are using gravity battery technology. They've done multiple international projects. Very exciting company. Recently IPO'd. And he talks about basically their evolution, his management team, the exciting stuff that he's seeing in energy storage. A really great interview and a wonderful listen to really cover new and emerging technologies in the space. I have to agree. This is one of my favorite interviews, and I'm really excited to start season two off with it. You're exactly right. The gravity-fed, long-duration batteries are really cool, but the folks over there at Energy Vault are also involved in microgrids, and so we're talking about some of the creative solutions that they're using to blend different types of technologies, conventional storage, green hydrogen, and other factors together to kind of come up with novel solutions to these types of energy problems. Rob's also a really interesting case because unlike a lot of the folks that we talked to, he took a very non-traditional path into energy. So he's got a very unique perspective from our industry that I hope you guys will be excited about and will enjoy. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you. And I think it might be helpful for you to give some background on yourself, how you got here on an energy vault to some of our listeners. Great. And Noah, thank you for having me and Mike as well. So I came in and started my career actually in energy, but in more traditional and integrated oil companies. So you might remember a company called Amoco, which was a big U.S. integrated oil company before the merger with British Petroleum. So I actually started my career in energy and very interestingly had a non-linear path to come back to renewable energy. It was amazing back then. They used to say that there was no problem that $20 a barrel couldn't solve. And I think here we are <laughs> sitting, uh, I think above $90, $90 today. So I know that's a whole nother topic. But interestingly, that was through the 90s. We did the merger with BP. And then toward the end of the 90s there, there was this thing called the internet that was evolving. And I was just fascinated by networking software and just the impact it it had on our society, on how we interact, on business. So I, shortly after the merger, took a year, did some graduate work at Northwestern at Kellogg, and then came back out and joined Lucent Technology, so Bell Labs, and got into networking and software and began to run my first businesses. So in my late 20s, early 30s, and those were global businesses. So did a lot of work around the world in building out and bringing to market new technology in telecommunications, which was going through its own transformation from 2.5G to 3G to 4G to where we are today. And then I circled back very interestingly through Bill Gross and Idea Lab. So Idea Lab, you might know, is one of the longest running technology incubators in the U.S., probably the most prominent based in Pasadena, California. And Bill Gross, the founder, reached out to me for a CEO role in a renewable technology that the timing didn't work then, but we stayed in touch for eight to 10 years. And through that time, he had this new idea about energy storage and reached out to me. And that's how I got back in 
to the renewable sector and where I have been since 2017. That's great. I mean, fascinating pathway through telecom, through conventional energy, and now into storage. What I think is one of the more interesting things about Energy Vault, though, it's not just sort of the conventional lithium ion style, like the way I describe it to our listeners here in sort of a conversational way. Imagine your cell phone battery on steroids. That's what we see a lot of the energy storage systems being. That is a market that you guys play in, but you're looking at some other newer and different technologies too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that was critical to the founding of the company. So exactly to your point, as we looked at solving this problem, which we knew was going to become so urgent to store renewable power so it could actually replace and we could begin to turn off fossil fuel, there were three main driving forces for us. One was the urgency of time which meant that we couldn't do these exotic battery chemistries or look at taking risk in something that may take five to 10 years to prove or where you have to build factories. The second thing was economics. A big impediment to implementing any new technology, in particular in the energy sector, is cost. And so to have something that you could essentially pair with renewables, wind and solar, which had become much lower than fossil fuel, and actually beat or be at parity with fossil fuel, when you combine them, that was fundamental. And the third was sustainability, meaning we didn't want to create something to store energy and have an offsetting environmental liability. And as we know with lithium ion, there's issues with end of life and some safety that rears its head from time to time. So I think that was fundamental as we looked at the space. And that's what led to our focus initially on looking at gravity, which pumped hydro, a lot of people in the energy sector know this, but maybe not a lot of general folks, that over 90% of energy storage today are these pumped hydroelectric dams and still remain about a little over 90%. And we looked at that technology, which is fundamental gravity. It's not an idea, it's the law, actually, so that (laughs) the water sort of transversing up and down. But we looked at a way to mirror the good, take gravity and mirror the good of pumped hydro, uh, long duration something that's reliable and that relies on potential energy and solve for some of the things that weren't so good, which is we want something lower cost. You want something scalable. You can build anywhere. You don't have to depend on having rivers or mountains that you have to dam up. You could do something that could mirror that motion or or that potential energy. So we developed a system of essentially lifting and lowering these composite blocks. I say Composite blocks, not concrete, because concrete wasn't good for sustainability. And so we came up with a way to develop a way to use just the dirt and the soil as well as waste materials. But that concept of lifting and lowering and automated all with software, which is fundamental for how we're solving storage problems broadly. So that's how we founded the company, but with a premise of software and using gravity for a long duration product. And of course, that's evolved into using that same platform to do short duration and even ultra long duration with green hydrogen. Amazing. And so for folks' benefits at home, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. For one, the idea of concrete, I don't know that a lot of people innately realize this, but when you pour and press concrete and it sort of sets up, it releases a lot of carbon dioxide back out into the atmosphere as a byproduct of that curing process. So Rob, when you're talking about the sustainability questions with that material, I think that that's where we're going with. On the pumped hydro side, What we see is like in places, say like West Virginia and Virginia in the mountains or in the mountains in say Pennsylvania or New York, what pumped hydro is, is you create a dam, you build a big sort of pond of water there. And what you do is when prices are inexpensive, you pump the water into that pond. And then when power prices are expensive, you release it through a turbine and you create energy. And the idea there is that 
these are huge. For example, the largest pumped hydro facility in the country is called Bath County. It sits on the Virginia, West Virginia border. It's almost 3000 megawatts, just to give some sense of that. Utility scale batteries are getting bigger, but you can see the limitation there. You need mountains, you need this opportunity, you need a lot of space to create that pond. But the idea being is that you're putting sort of this big, heavy mass water up high, and then you're allowing it to sink down to create that effect. That's what you guys are synthesizing in a lot smaller, more compact, sort of more scalable product, right? Yeah, you got it. And I appreciate you spending the time to explain it because it is something that for us, it was fundamental to avoid the use of concrete. So you mentioned why that's important. And not only that, but in a circular economic way, we can use things like coal ash concrete debris that typically transports in the state. Every state has a transportation sector that is having to not only dig up, but transport that and landfill it. We can use almost any waste materials a part of making those bricks. And it is interesting the way a lot of utilities and a lot of groups like pumped hydro because it's so reliable and they understand the technology. We came up with a way to make it scalable to your point where we can build structures to get the heights. It's gravity, so you do need height. So we do have to build a larger structure, but we're lifting and lowering instead of water, which is a precious resource in some places, these composite blocks and doing it in a way that can have something that lasts 30, 40 years plus, as opposed to like a lithium ion battery that degrades and has a pretty finite life given that degradation curve. So it is something that we believe and we know now because we're signing agreements with customers, we'll have a place in this clean energy transition. Rob, you guys started doing stuff abroad. I believe your first project was in China. So talk a little bit about some of that work and the decision to start abroad and then segue to the U.S. To clarify, we did actually our first large prototype project, Grid Interconnected in Switzerland. So we are a U.S. company founded at Ideal Lab, but the coincidence of I was living in the south part of Switzerland and our head technologist and his R&D team was there. So we actually built up the company there and went straight to a large grid interconnected prototype. So a full five megawatt. And like anything in the utility industry, we also knew and funded the company to be able to go right to a large scale with something grid interconnected because we wanted to demonstrate something to utilities that could be reliable and that we had done that. So we did that in July, 2020. It was through a pretty tough COVID period which I think was a killer for some startups just because of the nature of the time frame. But we got through all of that, did the proof point. And along the way, as we heard feedback from customers, they loved what we built and loved all the positives they saw in economics and sustainability. They loved its technical life very long and its cost. They gave us feedback on having something that was a little more modular. So our first commercial prototype was actually a rotating crane that lifted and lowered blocks we shifted and went with something more like a modular building. So think about a modular building of sort of vertical freight elevators, moving these large 25 metric ton composite blocks up and down. And the other thing we did is we separated energy and power. So we decoupled them so that you could essentially define and design a system to be, for example, 25 megawatts over four hours, so 100 megawatt hour, or 250 megawatts over eight hours, so a full two gigawatt hour of storage. You could just define it and modularly build those out. So we made those changes and then know how that's when we, as we were coming to market and making those new design changes, we had a group approach us based out of Houston that was in partnership with a remediation, a waste company in China, a publicly traded company. And they approached us and they saw and understood the waste 
aspect of this, the reuse, the circular economic, but also they were in energy. They were just getting into energy in a sector there in China. So they invested 50 million in our company. They then invested 50 million in a prepaid license to have the right to deploy it. And there's a royalty agreement with it, but they went right to scale with a 25 megawatt, 100 megawatt hour system. And we're actually commissioning that system as we speak. So really excited about that to start. And we've announced also a project with NL Green Power, the largest IPP in the world in the United States, and have some other things that we've announced in Australia with the application of the technology and other things on the way. That's terrific. And I agree with your overall thesis here is that there seems to be two components to it, is that through the software that you guys have developed, this optimization possibility where you can take essentially carbon-free energy that's generated at one point in time and sort of time shift that to a later point in time. You can imagine it's windy or it's sunny at periods of time where maybe consumption is low. You could essentially use that power to push these giant concrete blocks up to the top floor of that elevator. And then you're storing that carbon-free energy for the future. So it seems to me that you're almost a hybrid of an energy company and a technology company. I have a little bit of both in the model here. Yeah. Absolutely. And a lot of, especially people from outside the industry, because we can discharge electrons, they tend to think about us as generation. When in reality, we prefer to, of course, charge with renewable, but we can charge that system or lift those composite blocks up to height with any energy source. A lot of times in the middle of the night, the energy is almost free. We could also, from a standalone perspective, just build out storage in that way. And I think the IRA, for example, in the U.S. is seeking to, I think, help incentivize and accelerate the ability to build a little more reliable infrastructure and storage to help deal with this clean energy transition with renewables. Were there other provisions in the IRA that are really helpful to you? That was one of the things that I was really curious about is you guys' involvement in that process and how you're navigating it now, because I know that there's been guidance that's been issued even as late as this summer. It's fundamental and important, and it is having its desired effect. So for us, in addition to, for the first time, including energy storage within the ITC framework, so to get the investment tax credit that was typically applied only to wind and solar. But on top of that, because with our gravity system, you can make it all with domestic content in the U.S., meaning we don't rely on rare earth metals from certain parts of the world and limited parts of the world. So you can actually build our gravity system 100% in the United States. That's good for jobs and good for the U.S. in terms of having its independence as energy goes. That's important. The other part of the IRA that gives an incentive and it's another 10% is relative to serving what's called energy communities. These are the communities that may be disadvantaged or underserved as communities generally that typically have lower amounts of job creation so or higher unemployment is another way to say that. So if you're building out something that's within what's defined as energy community, there could be another 10% on top of that. If we're actually owning the system ourselves and making it we qualify for a different aspect of the IRA in the advanced manufacturing production credit. You've heard of this as 45X, it's $45 a kilowatt hour. Or so for example, our green hydrogen project, that's the largest one announced and will be the first one to market. It's announced with PG&E out in the city of Calistoga that we can talk more about later. That project, we're waiting on final guidance from Treasury, but I'm hoping that green hydrogen as an underlying technology can be also considered under the next set of rules that folks are waiting on. That is terrific. And the IRA has been somewhat of a 
intentional and unintentional theme for us kind of throughout this season of the podcast, because there's just so much in there in terms of these incentives, as you say, domestic content being a huge piece of this, being able to take and not just build the actual machine here, whether it's a gravity storage technology or potentially hydrogen, but the actual components, the metal, the parts, the screws, bolts, all of that kind of stuff. There's incentives related to jobs and to training, to internships. It's this whole concept that it's almost a cradle to grave type of energy policy that is sort of intended to create that kind of transformational change. And it's exciting to see you guys be able to capitalize on that. I am interested in the green hydrogen. I want to think a little bit on the storage. I do wonder about adoption for you. So storage, it's here. It exists. Don't get me wrong. There's over three gigs of it in California. There's plenty of it that's being deployed in Texas and New England, but it is still in many ways the new kid on the block. There are questions about storage. Generally, you guys come along, you have a different version of storage. And our industry can sometimes be a little slow to embrace emerging technologies as new things. Did you have any difficulties with adoption, getting folks comfortable with what you were up to, how the technology worked, that it was reliable, all of these kinds of features? The answer is absolutely. Everything you just said is absolutely true within storage. And if you look at where storage is today, if you think about it, 90% of it today are still these pumped hydroelectric types of facilities that have been built for the last 100 years. There's only one other technology getting deployed in large volume, and that's lithium-ion batteries. So that's the world of energy storage in terms of volume today, which in a sense, and this may surprise you to hear me say this, but as an industry, we are behind on the innovation curve to have things that are economical, sustainable, and also something that can be deployed in scale all over the world. We're well behind. And I would also say, you bring up some good points of, it's amazing anytime you're doing something new and you always see these things happen, there's always reactions, especially when you're challenging the status quo. And we are definitely a company that is challenging a lot of the traditional models for storage, but also uniquely, we're the only energy storage company that's actually serving short duration. We do integrate it in a unique hardware and software architecture, short duration with lithium ion long duration with gravity, and also multi-day type of storage with green hydrogen. So uniquely, we're serving all of those where all the other energy storage companies are serving just one component of them. So that's already puts us a little bit on our radar. And Ideal Lab and Bill Gross, they have a mural on their wall that I actually put it on our wall of our office here of uh, Energy Vault that was from a 19th century philosopher, Schopenhauer, that said all truth passes through three phases. First, it is ridiculed. And we definitely went through that. I mean, think about people see this rotating crane lifting up at that time, 35 metric time blocks. So we definitely went through that phase. Second, it is violently opposed. (laughs) So we've seen that phase as well. And then third, it is accepted as being universal truth. It's just interesting. I put that on our wall here because that's definitely been the journey we've been on. And of course, you progress when you get the backing of groups like Saudi Aramco, you know, the largest energy company, BHP, the largest mining company. And when you get that backing and getting to a public offering is no small feat as well. But we did $146 million of revenue in our first year of revenue last year, and we were going to do 2 to 3x that this year as we've publicly guided. So it's been a journey. And I think with energy storage, I think the point that you're making is there's a lot of new things that have been announced, a lot around long duration. There's iron flow batteries. You've got zinc air that's out there. You've got CO2 and other technologies that have been announced, but are still, they aren't even deployed yet, or they're in their very early deployments at very small scale. And just look at gravity. Out of the four to five companies out there doing gravity, 
None of them have progressed past seed or government funding. None of them, except, of course, ours. It's a challenge because those economics are difficult. To generate electrons today with wind and solar is super cheap, one to two cents a kilowatt hour. That's in comparison with a fully amortized, already built fossil plant, combined cycle natural gas, which is four to five cents. But if you look at the cost to store those same electrons, so if you're generating with wind and solar, great. You might say, hey, why aren't we just deploying more wind and solar? Well, guess what? If you want to take away their intermittency and store it, to store those same electrons can cost a factor of five to 10 times of the cost to generate it. It is a challenge. And that is the opportunity, I think, and why we're focused on storage very broadly and using software really as a fundamental platform to do that. So, Rob, you talked about going public and the process to get there. And you are the only entity that we've interviewed so far on the podcast that is public. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? As most companies, regardless of the industry, I think go through, you build your business and look at market adoption. You get a strong investor base along the way and ideally get to commercial agreements and start deployments. And we definitely followed that same path. I would say very quickly, meaning we moved very aggressively, I think, with our Series B that we announced of $110 million, and then raised that money of that size due to the opportunity we saw. And then COVID hit, which was very interesting because that, on the one hand, it froze the world. On the other hand, as we came out of COVID, I'm not sure if, how many people remember exactly that period of the fall of 2020 when a lot of things happened there. I think BlackRock, Larry Fink, came out and said, we're not going to support fossil fuel. We aren't investing anymore in the trillions that they were investing in energy at the time. Then you had the election, the change of administration with Biden from Trump. So that was a shift, at least on the U.S. side. And then you had some of the largest companies in the world and even the largest countries in the world that had never made public commitments on getting to net carbon neutral or achieving certain levels of greenhouse gas emissions that were coming out and making those commitments. So that, with all of that happening for us, that momentum That created more interest in the building block technologies toward clean energy transition, of which energy storage was going to represent just tremendous growth. The numbers were anywhere from 300 billion to 600 billion spent in energy storage over the next essentially 10 to 20 years through 2040. So I think that's what woke up communities, the R&D, the venture community to more investments. I still say we are behind because getting those technologies to market at scale is still where groups are. For us, to our IPO, we went through a period where there was high valuations being placed on companies that were addressing this market that had good growth opportunity, that had good investors, and that had initial agreements, initial commercial agreements, as we did and demonstrated with doing as we went public in February 2022 that was our first year of revenue and doing 146 million in our first year. So I think as far as getting up to the IPO and going public, I think all of that, we followed what I consider a pretty quick path. I mean, we did it in about four and a half years. And then I think we performed very, very well the first six months. We were the best performing IPO in our sector for about a six month period until we had the interest rate environment with inflation creeping up. And then things just really change in terms of the capital markets and how companies like ours that are new and just working a path to getting cash flow positive, et cetera, and in the early stages of their first few years of revenue, the capital market volatility just gets very high. And of course, that's the market we're in now. There's a lot of interesting 
trends that have been happening very, very quickly. The COVID era was in many ways fascinating for so many reasons for our industry. I remember when we closed down our offices and everybody went home trying to figure out whether for us, like for example, I'm a consultant, we do lots of merger and acquisition work, a lot of transactional work. And we're like, is all of that going to stop while we (laughs) go home? There was this uncertainty, but it does feel like during that period of time, there was a very rapid adoption of broad scale, clean energy, ESG style goals across the investor platform. You saw throughout the Fortune 500, not just sort of Larry Fink, but just generally, whether you were an investor, bank, or another fund like that, or you were simply Walmart or anyone else, you saw that expansion of those policies. It seemed like you also saw an expansion of investor interest in being able to put money to work in that sector. And that was a very rapid and tectonic change, right? And I think that you guys were positioned to capitalize on that here. Where do you see the next evolution now that we're sort of normalized? As you say, we have this high interest rate environment that is somewhat of a challenge. Couple that with opportunities that are in the IRA. From an investing financing perspective, what do you see as sort of the pathway for you from here? Your observations are are spot on. And starting with COVID, very interestingly, if you think about what COVID forced us to do, and it was the first time in my lifetime, not that I'm from the first industrial <laughs> era, but I am 53 years sure. old, so I, I have some level of visibility looking backwards. But it's the first time where we had an event happen where it forced the world to have to coordinate and to try to unite. I've mentioned this before, and we didn't do it very well. I think countries did their best. And I think this clean energy transition and what's happening with climate change and these weather events, and it's another event. And that I think is going to force us. And if we're successful, I think we need to accelerate how we collaborate as a world. And it's very simple. There's one country in the world that produces more GHGs in the next six to seven combined. And so we can do a great job in certain countries. By the way, the second largest contributor to GHGs is the United States. But we can do a great job in certain places, but there are no walls or fish tanks or bubbles around countries. So the world has to solve the problem. And so I think there's a level of collaboration and hopefully unity that the world can aspire to achieve that is going to help us address this problem more quickly. I mean, if you look at China, for example, has set out its targets, it's a little scary that they're planning to continue to increase GHGs through 2030 and then get to carbon neutral by 2060. That's going to continue to heat up our environment. It's going to be difficult no matter what we do with a lot of the other countries combined to offset that growth, it can be done. The U.S. is making efforts. They're number two. I was just in India because there's a lot of things happening there with renewable deployment, an economic structure there that it's difficult to deploy because of the cost. I spoke to all the biggest companies there about that. So I'd say I'm giving that as a backdrop because I think your observations are astute relative to where we've come from the last two years, how we came out of COVID and there was this tailwind that pushed us through. And then now coming back to your question of where are we going, what's going to be the next thing here as far as clean energy transition goes. I think as we're seeing, economics will continue to weigh. And it was interesting to see almost there was, I don't want to say a flashback a little bit, but people looked at the cost of the shift to renewables and the cost of energy storage vis-a-vis the cost of fossil. That was, I think, weighing a bit in, on some large utilities that had national scale and that were state-owned. There were things happening even on the political basis in those countries in making some shifts around, hey, what are we doing? We're spending so much money on this transition. Isn't it cheaper just 
to stay with fossil. This has been the classic why we got to where we are today until you start to see these events that happen that are taking people's lives. I mean, think about how scary COVID was. You could solve it. We'd get there with a vaccine. You know, over time, there was a path. But you cannot predict or control Mother Nature. And we've learned that over time. And I think that's where having the R&D investment with new technology so that that innovation is always going to be important. I think there's a lot of a lot more investment. You have a lot of the billions and things that are being made in the oil industry, the traditional, what was the traditional oil industry. Now they're becoming more of these energy companies that's all being invested in making what their core business less, let's say, a liability to the environment. But while investing in new technologies or integrating with more sustainable technologies through our travels, we're as a company, as you pointed out, we're in every continent of the world because the nature of our investor base from Australia, from Korea, from what's happening with China and even Saudi Aramco, for example, is an investor from the Middle East. We uniquely see what's happening around the world and are taking that experience and through our strategic advisory board are using that knowledge to help evolve our solutions to really focus on accelerating this transition from an energy storage perspective. And I think that global collaboration, whatever form that takes, and ideally even at political levels, the more we can do that, and I don't want to talk about something that some people consider just a holy grail or something very difficult to achieve, but all of that will help us get there more quickly. It's really interesting when you talk about COVID and we could solve that with a vaccine and people staying home until we got a vaccine and then kind of evolving out of it. And there's so much data out there on the cost of the climate crisis and the health challenges that come with the climate challenge. And it feels like people don't absorb that in the same way. And I don't know why, but it does kind of go back to your three stages of getting to the ultimate truth, I guess. I feel like I've been fighting that in my day job for the last (laughs) 10 years. I feel like we're still in the opposition phase. (laughs) You make a very good point on why don't people feel that like we felt COVID. And I think it manifests itself, at least today, in these events that are happening more often because of the heating up of the atmosphere and the changing of our climate patterns. And they're still sort of localized these events. We have what happened in Texas. We had all the flooding in Germany, the fires in Australia. I mean, you go back the last three to four years, they tend to be localized and more contained. But what's happening as we're seeing is they're going to become more frequent and I think larger in size and scale. And then I think it becomes a little bit more real to people when they see that impact. And this isn't something that could have a an impact that's just one to two years. It's difficult to reverse. That's why there's so much, I think, hope and technology going into the carbon capture side to let's, hey, let's get the planet back to the level of temperature when, for example, 1970, when I was born, that is possible with some of the latest innovations over time. But we are in a little bit of a clock. And I think as these things become more frequent, I think it will become more important and it becomes more of a priority. I really recognize and want to recognize the companies that regardless are making massive efforts to decarbonize their supply chain and become net carbon neutral regardless, because it's important. And even the investor groups and the largest funds, they have requirements to invest. It's happening through various structures and policies and really just, I think, courageous leadership of companies and leaders. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. At the beginning of this, you talked about starting out your career sort of in the oil world. And actually, so many of the oil and gas companies are really thinking that their 2.0 is going to be renewables. And in fact, they're becoming some of the biggest investors in the renewable space. That's part of the transition. And that's where, I mean, look at where we are today. The math is really fantastic, meaning fantastically large in their favor when oil's at $90 a barrel. And that's where when you get into equity and, and look at ways as a society and ways with policy, we can help channel a lot of those profits into ways to accelerate the clean energy transition. And I'm always hopeful and optimistic. Generally, I have eight children. You have to be optimistic. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I have a fairly large family, at least for this day and age. I think about a future of our world for my children, their children, and having something that would hopefully at least resemble what it is today and hopefully even better. And I think we'll be better if we can get these technologies to market. It's an amazing time we're in right now with where global economies are and where energy is and courageous leadership, as I said, and of companies, of entrepreneurs, of policymakers. We need to see more of that. I have to say, I'm incredibly impressed, Rob, because I've got two children and I have a difficult time figuring out how to get to my office, which is like 10 minutes away from my house every day, <laughs> let alone not you traveling yeah. to India and all over the world, <laughs> trying to change the planet and run a profitable business here. So kudos to you, sir. That's quite the balance. Impressive. It's a team sport for sure, having a family. Absolutely. <laughs> I love one of the things that you kind of keyed on a little bit earlier in the discussion, but it's a theme that's kind of been playing through a lot of the comments that you've made here. It's this idea that the carbon that we emit, the wind doesn't care about political boundaries. It doesn't care if it's in the United States or if it's in Europe or if it's in Asia, that this is really a global effort. To your point about China being the largest emitter of carbon by far, look, the US does a nice job emitting carbon too, and how this is sort of a collective effort. I also wonder about you guys as a firm, as a company, trying to move from you're not in a startup phase, but you're sort of in an early phase of your development as an organization through in an international space. What I've found with our clients, we do a lot of business with folks that are international. You talked about Enel. They're the largest IPP in the country, but they're an Italian utility. When you talk about BP, they're a British company. You think about Toyota and others that are investing in the space. It is literally a different language, but there is a cultural component to doing business in different places, understanding what you need to be able to understand to sort of operate on a global scale, but also to deploy these types of newer technologies out there. How has it been trying to navigate that, to learn what's important to folks in Switzerland versus what's important to folks in China or in South America? How have you kind of navigated that and become fluent in that world? It's a great question. And I'll start with something personal in my career. So back in the early 90s, when I came out of undergrad, Back then, remember, we didn't have this global network of an internet where now the world is so small, if you think about it, with as far as information goes. So back then, part of why I chose to go into a large oil company, it wasn't for any specific passion around eventually getting to renewables back then. They were global organizations. So I had an interest because I, while I was in my undergrad, I did a year in Europe studying, and I just was fascinated by history, by culture, by different languages, how people interrelate and how it was important to experience that coming out of the United States, which of course had its own perspective. Early on in my career, part of my choices career-wise were focused on global and globalization and understanding people and their history and why they interrelate the way they do. For me, that was fascinating. And I think fundamentally now, your question about how do you 
navigate around the globe, it starts with being present around the globe. And this is something somewhat unique, I think, for our company at our age and stage, where we had investor groups from, and some of the largest ones in their respective sectors from different parts of the world. Energy is a global sector. It's the largest GDP sector in the world. So just by definition, we're in an area that is fundamental to how we operate as a society. It does manifest itself in different ways everywhere you go. And that's where you asked earlier, Noah, about China and why we were there. And I shared from an investor perspective and why we were there quickly, but also given their where they are in their own net carbon neutral journey, clear that we want to get storage there to get renewables there. And there it's mandated. So there's something unique, a country that's actually mandated for as much as renewable that's going to get deployed for every 100% of renewable, you have to deploy 20% at power of energy storage times four hours. So it's pretty massive because there no one's deploying more renewables right now than China. There, It's mandated and in command and control there that you have to deploy the storage with it. That's just an example of something we started there because of speed and because of the problem that's being solved and the impact we believed we could have on the world by getting storage that's non-lithium based there out in long duration with gravity. Of course, they're using it for four hours, right? This is the other aspect of the market today where they're using our gravity energy storage, which is designed for eight to 12. I mean, anywhere above four is okay, but they're using it for four hours. I think that the main part of being able to address global markets has to do not only about being there and being local, we've uniquely been able to do that because of our investor base, but also we knew there was going to be no silver bullet in technology in solving the energy storage problems, which is why, if you know anything about Bill Gross and Idealab or what he's done, software was always fundamental. And if you think about my journey and my career, that's where I spent the whole middle part of my career was in networking during a huge growth phase in software, network security. So a lot of software-based technologies because of fundamentally how you can use it to innovate and get to market quickly and at very low cost. So those things all together with that software platform now, we're implementing different technologies to solve different problems in these countries around the world that are all uniquely differently. And, and as I shared, I just finished a three-week trip starting in China, visiting our gravity energy storage system there that's in commissioning, did a week in Europe, and then a week in India. Just fascinating. Every one of those places, very different in how they're solving the problem. I can only imagine. So cool. I love talking to people like you, Rob, because I just wish everybody else was this, I guess, passionate about what they do. It really translates in this conversation. It makes me wonder, you're doing all of these different things. Like, what's your day to day like? Your average day. (laughs) Should I add in the eight kids part too? Yeah, seriously, because as a mom who runs a hedge fund, I think that's really important. I think people don't understand that there are literally times I've changed a diaper and jumped on an 8 a.m. call. Thank you for that. I will tell you, it's there's never enough hours in the day, number one. It's great to have you all in leading these discussions because I don't get to do this very often. It's only at these times where I actually get to talk about the journey and the why, the purpose of the things we're doing. So these are great opportunities for me that we, by design, fit in for folks like you that are doing great work to get the message out there to the public. So I appreciate that. When you're passionate about what you do and a lot of those fundamentals about, I'm sure know how you have built your family and Mike yourself. I've never been 
a believer in the saying of you have to separate your professional and personal because it's so related. What we do in our days is a part of what supports our families and we're passionate about it. That that sort of transcends that professional, personal type of atmosphere that we live in. And it is all connected. My children are fascinated about what I'm doing. I routinely, at least with my younger kids are 15, 17, and 20. I have to pause there because I always have a birthday. I have one coming up on Halloween. So my youngest. But I started taking them on my trips. Oh, great. I couldn't do that with my older ones. There's always a journey when you have more than a few kids with what the older ones, the time you had, because when you're building your career versus the time you have with the younger ones and your learnings and you just become a better parent one way. I was in DC. The last three times I've been to Washington, DC, I brought my 17-year-old and once both my 17 and 15-year-old, they were in the meetings dressed in suits with congressmen, with senators. And it was great. They were had a front row seat on what we're trying to do there with policy. And it's all interconnected. So I just try to do my best to work that in and be the best father I can be in supporting the future generations, let's say. It certainly seems that you're succeeding at that, Rob. I mean, that's incredible. And I mean, what a wealth of opportunity for them, wherever they go and whatever they want to be in the future. Those types of conversations matter. How do you conduct yourself? What does that conversation feel like? How do you relate with folks? I feel that there's so much about business that is about the numbers and things like that and about the analytics and all of that. But there will always be a personal component to it, right? Your interpersonal relationships with folks, your ability to engage and things like that. And to give them the opportunity to sort of witness how the sausage gets made in that way. Those are incredible experiences that they can carry with them forever. That's fantastic. I tell a lot of our employees here, and this is where leadership is so important in the company at all levels. It's not just about me or my management team. We make an impact on people's lives in that their experience they have and for example, here at Energy Vault, I really take this very personally as an obligation, and all of us here do, is that you know we impact how any employee will go home at the end of their day and in terms of how they're feeling at the end of that day based on their experience working with us. And that's where it was really a great experience for me with this company. And it's the first one where I've built from soup to nuts as a co-founder in the company through all the fundraising and through the IPO, which was just an amazing experience on the New York Stock Exchange. And to build it and build the culture in the way and learning from everything, all the mistakes I made in my past and past companies or past jobs and the opportunity to build it with the culture you want and ensure that that's something that is going to be preserved as you grow the business. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do is as we're growing very rapidly is making sure we're not losing sight of what got us here and what's important as we participate in this clean energy transition. That will pay you dividends. At the end of the day, when you start to think about the breakdown between your personal life you spend with your family, just from a time basis, think about the amount of hours there are in a day, how much of the time your job occupies versus how much of the time the rest of you occupies. And you have to be satisfied as a whole person in a way. And at the end of the day, we can write really big checks to people if we want to and provide all sorts of financial opportunities and things like that. And that'll carry you so far. But if you're not satisfied as a whole person, you won't keep the best and the brightest around. So it feels to me like it's just good relationships with your folks. It's also good business. If you're satisfying both of them, they're both innately connected. And that seems like something that you have woven into the fabric here, this sustainability concept, this environmental justice, social justice component of the business. It feels like it is a core mandate on the masthead type of a 
priority for you guys that you carry through through all aspects of your business, not just the projects that you're doing, but the way that you treat your employees and the folks that are working there too? They're spot on there. If I look at why people chose to come here, when you build a company from zero in the last few years and you're in some cases double or tripling headcount in the early years, a lot of people chose to come here for the purpose. So the mission we have as a company, so that's one. And and that's a softball in the sense of, of course, people want to be a part of a company that wants to support having a better planet and our transition in energy, but also for the culture. And a lot of it had to do with they were leaving a place where they didn't have the culture, the leadership. I think some of the communication and the teaming that takes place, how you build organizations and have employees reach across and solve problems together, be very transparent and how they work together, regardless of organizations. We try to be here very flat. We encourage cross-organization and even cross-hierarchy. We try not to have people feel at all threatened if someone's talking to their boss or across the organization. It's all in the spirit of let's go solve the problem together and not worry about credit, et cetera, or, or things like that. So this has been fundamental as to why a lot of folks have joined us in word of mouth and how things travel. And that really, I think, also evolved during COVID. I think a lot of folks said, I survived this. I'm looking around and I need to make sure I'm satisfied as a whole person, like you said, Mike, and I want to go work someplace where I'm happy at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. It's not about the paycheck for people anymore. It really isn't. It's a component for sure. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I think generally people really want to feel good about where they work, the direction of the company, the commitment of the company, and are we true to what we say? And they hold us accountable. Absolutely. It's terrific. That feels like a recipe for long-term success for sure, right? You're only as good as the people that you've got at the end of the day. And if you've got the right people and they're happy and satisfied, they buy into the mission. That is a pathway to the top for sure. I want to be respectful of your time here. We've been at it for about an hour. We have some more time left, but I want to just make sure that we've covered all of the topics that you want to talk to. Is there an area that you want us to focus on or things that you want to make sure that we cover? The one thing that might be interesting to talk about a little bit is the project with Pacific Gas and Electric and the green hydrogen one, because it's a hybrid. It's very unique. So maybe if you teen up, since I did mention that earlier in our dialogue here, maybe you can sort of go back to that and tee that up and ask what was unique about that or tee that up. I think that would be interesting because it does bring together software, different technology, solving a problem that was very difficult to solve. So I think that would be interesting if you want to tee it up. So Rob, we had talked a little bit earlier about coming back to green hydrogen. And I know that you guys have been doing some interesting stuff with PG&E out on the West Coast there. Can we circle back? Can you start us with what is green hydrogen and then take us through from what is the technology How does it actually kind of work? And then through to the projects that you're working on out there on the West Coast? Fundamentally, there's various ways to produce hydrogen and also various ways that it exists. So in liquid or in gas form, green hydrogen implies that you're essentially producing it using renewable energy. And one very common way you can do that today is to use solar or wind, but typically solar that will drive the process of electrolysis. So where you essentially, from a solution perspective, you take solar energy, for example, you take a long duration storage technology. Those haven't been real prominent out in the market, but having an economical long duration technology where you can therefore provide power to an electrolyzer and essentially split water 
water, which is H2O. You essentially split water and segregate the hydrogen out. And that's one of the ways today that people are producing what's called green hydrogen. So in the case of, let's think about Pacific Gas and Electric. And what I'd say is, first of all, the concept of using green hydrogen now is an important part of our clean energy transition or countries getting independence as a whole, not you know, having energy independence that given, for example, what happened with and is happening with the Ukraine and Russia and the pressure that put into Europe. So there's a whole nother topic around the place green hydrogen will play in our clean energy transition. But let me talk about to answer your question about Pacific Gas and Electric, because in this case, fascinating Calistoga, which if you know the wine country Napa is a beautiful, quaint town in Napa Valley. It does have, because of the nature in California, uh, the fire season, there's an aspect about being in California, but in Calistoga as well, where every year you get into what's called the fire season and where they have to bring in diesel generators to have on standby. In the case when there are fires, there's an impact to the utility and the ability for the utility to keep the power on. And so they have to bring diesel generators, which is not only bad for the environment in terms of GHGs, but they're loud. As part of the issues that happened during the wildfires and that had a severe impact on the area, the Public Utility Commission in California was mandating having alternative ways to provide power in the event of these, what's called PSPS, which is power safety and power shutdowns or planned safety power shutdowns planned or unplanned, actually. And in this case, they were trying to solve for having an alternative to these diesel generators. So they put out some RFIs and RFPs. They were expecting something back using natural gas because they were trying to solve for a multi-day storage need. So if they had to provide up to two days, up to 48 hours, or even up to 96 hours, four days of power to power that city in the event of a shutdown, how do you do that? And how do you do it renewably? Well, they didn't have a renewable solution where they could have a storage capability to generate that and discharge power. In this case, they wanted eight and a half megawatts to feed that city of 5,000 residents over two days, a minimum of 48 hours. There were a lot of solutions coming back using natural gas since they had some of the existing infrastructure there to do that. We very creatively, and I credit our creative, both technical and financial team, and we've got broad technology experience within Energy Vault. And we came up with a solution where you could architect essentially bringing green hydrogen in a tank. So we don't make the green hydrogen in this case. We designed a tank system and combined it essentially with a fuel cell to be able to generate eight and a half megawatt over 48 and even up to 96 hours. It can be expanded to in the event of a shutdown. And the other thing we integrated in there, and this is all with our software, because they also wanted the ability to have some ancillary power and have support for what's called black start or some immediate response, as well as what's called grid forming capability. We integrated a small amount of lithium ion. So very interesting. It's actually a hybrid system. It's the largest green hydrogen energy storage system that's been announced in the United States. We believe the world and will be the first one to operate that'll be in June next year. We're going to have this system up and in place. And essentially, this hybrid of green hydrogen with a small amount of lithium ion and all managed through our energy management system and software to be able to be discharged between four to six times, maybe eight times a year during any events or planned maintenance, but can also be used for resource adequacy by others. So it's a very unique way to solve a problem that was also, as you know, in any utility scale solution 
that gets approved, you have to meet an economic threshold. You have to meet a safety threshold with it. So went through and got the California Public Utility approvals earlier this year in May, the, the deal we announced in January, it was done the end of December last year, and are on schedule to be able to deliver that in June. It's a really interesting example of solving a problem, bringing together different technologies, back to my earlier comments about no silver bullet in storage, for a unique application of a microgrid that we set up and with really the only way to do ultra long duration today. There's no technology to do it unless you have a pumped hydro dam that you can deliver that over time or our gravity system could have done it large enough, but you're building a big structure there in Calistoga that (laughs) wasn't going to fly out in that area. So we brought together and with our software, we can look at new technologies like green hydrogen that could be used as an energy source to be discharged to meet that need. So really excited about that. That's awesome. And so the way I'm thinking about this, and tell me if I've got it right, is that you bring in the green hydrogen for our audience's benefit here. So hydrogen is a combustible fuel, right? You can burn it the same way that you burn natural gas. The way that you acquire it is different and it doesn't have the same carbon intensity that you would have a natural gas. You run that through a fuel cell and that gives you the opportunity to operate almost like the generators that you were displacing. So you've got that. You can then also couple that with batteries. So there's periods of time where, say, you don't need to be burning the hydrogen. The batteries can provide some of those services for you, couple it with renewables, and you have a low to sort of no carbon solution that provides that backstop. And I think the other thing that's eloquent about this is that you can imagine in a case where there are fires throughout sort of the forest, which is a natural condition for these forests and the grid is not available to you. When Rob's talking about Black Start, he's talking about being able to sort of start the grid by yourself, which is effectively what that is, is no external support, but we'll be able to take this town in Napa Valley turn the lights back on when the fires have sort of dropped the grid here and until the grid can kind of come back on and recover from that. Is that about right? Does that sound kind of like the solution you're putting together here? Yeah, I think you got it roughly right there. That small lithium ion component gives them the ability to provide daily ancillary power. So it's not just sitting idle until there's an event. The hydrogen sits there and that just gets refilled with green hydrogen once it's discharged over that 48 hour period. But yes, you've described it properly. Wow, this sounds like a solution you could also utilize in lots of other places that might have these needs. Other applications, think about military bases, for example, that need a backup, some type of microgrid, any where you're looking at a longer duration need or a multi-day need and critical. I mean, think about data centers and things that right now, a lot of them, they rely on diesel gen. They're afraid to be disconnected from the grid to rely 100% on renewables when they're intermittent. And it's too mission critical. So with the hyperscalers, around. We're very interested to help solve that problem. As you can tell by these examples I'm giving, I don't just make these up. (laughs) They come (laughs) from real customer engagements. And it's just another way where we have to uniquely integrate different technology to economically and sustainably solve a problem. And I think Energy Vault, that is a core competency that we've been able to demonstrate through the announcements of some of these projects. I really appreciate that you recognize that Calistoga is going to need a different solution. That's been a struggle for the energy world for a very long time, is the states all have to work together on some solution. Something works for one state and not the other. It is all very localized. That has been a huge issue in getting even transmission developed in our country. The creative thinking is great and very much necessary in our industry. It really is. And it's only going to, I think, become more important on the innovation front that we think about solving these problems in ways that we haven't solved them before because some of those technologies have not been available. Or in this case of Calistoga, taking some existing technologies that can be deployed 
with confidence and can be deployed sustainably by the nature of the architecture that you put together. That creativity is what we have to continue to do as an industry. Rob, you've shared all of these great insights and we really appreciate it. But something we always ask our guests at the end is, you know, if you could wave your magic wand to remove one barrier that's ideal for the energy future, what would that barrier be? I think the barrier, and I'm going to touch on not a technology because there's a lot I could say about that, but it's this aspect of the magic wand of having the world, the world's leaders collaborate and drop some of the political interdependencies to focus on solving a problem together. I think we're going to have to do more of that, not only with this problem of climate change that we're solving and this clean energy transition that is fundamental for us as a society, but there'll be other reasons why we're going to need that to happen. So that would be my one wish. I hope it comes true, Rob. That's a great one. And I think it's absolutely necessary. I certainly also hope it comes true because we all have kids. Absolutely. I have to say, Rob, this has been a complete pleasure on our part. This has been a great conversation. Fascinating stuff that you guys are up to. Really interesting perspective as a growing global energy company that is trying to facilitate the transition here. So thank you so much for spending time with us and giving the opportunity for our listeners to learn a bit about you. Great, Mike. Noha, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com, that's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power. No Power.